Hello everyone, it's uh, it's Wesley here, and I just wanted to let you know that the episode you're about to listen to is not a new recording for me. Um, I'm taking the month of April 2019 uh, off to sort of prep for the rest of the year, what will probably be the final episodes of History of the Great War leading up until the end of the year. Um, so I pulled some episodes from the Patreon backlog, specifically four episodes, on the evolution of and then the usage of cavalry during the war. I think these are really interesting episodes that sort of dive deep into a topic that is often not discussed when it comes to the First World War. I did want to point out that these episodes are over two years old now, so the audio quality is maybe a little different than than what you're used to with the new new episodes. Um, I will be back uh, the first week of May 2019 with episode 200, which will be begin our sort of, uh, you know, the rest of the year for our episodes here. So anyway, sit back and enjoy uh, this and the next three episodes on dealing with cavalry during the First World War, and uh, I'll be back in about a month. It's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War Premium episode number three. This episode is on what I think is an interesting topic, and I'm going to let one of the authors of one of the sources for the episode introduce it with this quote from his work entitled Fire and Sword. Quote, The metaphor of the charge against machine guns, or of the incompetent Victorian cavalry general attempting to control a tank battle, has spread beyond military studies into the general vocabulary of historians and readers of history as a touchstone of all that is reactionary, foolish, and futile. It is probably too well established ever to be removed. This whole thing started with a question that I saw on the internet one day while eating my lunch about the role of cavalry during the war. This led me down the usual internet rabbit hole until I ended up reading two doctoral dissertations. One of these was by David Kenyon, entitled British Cavalry on the Western Front, 1916-1918, and the other one was from Stephen Badsey, by the name of Fire and the Sword, the British Army and the Arme Blanche Controversy, 1871-1921, which you have already heard from. Both of these dissertations are actually available for free online, and I've put a link to both of them on the Patreon post and at historyofthegreatwar.com if you want to check them out. Be warned, though, that they're about 800 pages combined, and they're not exactly the most lively reads. Reading these two dissertations caused me to be a bit more critical about my view on cavalry during the war, and how I have presented it on the podcast. I sort of took for granted what I read from many historians in countless books, that cavalry was worthless, that cavalry was pointless, and it was a drag on the armies in the field. That narrative is what you will hear if you read any popular book on the war, pretty much ever written. It's pretty difficult to find an author who spends any time at all talking about the cavalry beyond the three downsides that we will talk about here in a bit. This tendency to ignore the cavalry almost completely plays into one of the most persistent storylines of the last 100 years, the story of the incompetent British cavalry generals who, through their ignorance, cost thousands of lives for the British soldiers. So that little trip through the internet is why we are here, and this will probably be part one of three or four parts of premium episodes on cavalry during the war. 
This episode, we will look at the primary issues with the cavalry that you will always hear talking about when you look at the war. Before we move on to the evolution of the British cavalry and its doctrine in the decades after the Franco-Prussian War. Next time, we will continue that discussion to bring the cavalry up to the start of the war and into the early engagements before the Battle of the Marne. Finally, in part three, we will look at the last two years of the war, from around the time of the Battle of the Somme until the Armistice in 1918. One note, as I feel I've had to say so many times, this will be almost 100% focused on the British cavalry during the war. That is just the sources that I have available to me, and the source pool is also quite small, for reasons that I mentioned earlier. My goal with these episodes is to give you some really good information to chew on, so that hopefully you are better prepared to draw your own conclusions on whether or not cavalry really did have any role on the battlefield in the First World War. The first source that I mentioned, and the one that does a great job of introducing this topic, is British Cavalry on the Western Front, 1916-1918, by David Kenyon. Kenyon starts his work with this quote, The Marquis de Anglesey opened the final volume of the history of the British cavalry in 1997 with the words, Justice has never been done to the part played by the cavalry in France and Flanders during the years 1915-1918. to And right from the beginning, it is very clear that what Kenyon is attempting to accomplish with his dissertation, he is seeking to convince the reader that the cavalry of the First World War not only had a reason to exist, but were also useful to the armies on the Western Front, and to directly contradict many histories which would lead you to believe that they were worthless. He tries to do this by showing the contributions of the cavalry arm of the British armed forces during four distinct operations during the last two years of the war. The attack on the Somme in 1916, the attacks at Arras and Cambrai in 1917, and then the spring and summer offensives during 1918. Now, before we move on to a more detailed look at the evolutions and actions of the cavalry, we will first talk about the three topics that Kenyon refers to as myths that should be familiar to anyone who has done any reading about the Western Front. The first myth is the criticism of many generals of the British Army because they came from the cavalry. Most of this focus is on General Douglas Haig, who led the British Army for so long and also happened to be a longtime cavalry officer. Quote, the argument runs that Haig was a figurehead of a wider group of out-of-touch 19th century cavalry officers who gained their positions due to mutual support and to a man proved incapable of dealing with the technological and intellectual challenges of a conflict on the scale of the Western Front. End quote. This is a storyline that re- runs through almost every history of the war, especially those written in the first 50 or so years after the war ended. They all talk about how slow the British commanders were to react to the new style of warfare that they found themselves in, and how they kept groups of cavalry behind the line to exploit the breakthrough that never came. This trend has started to change in recent decades, this presumed incompetence, but it's very difficult for most readers and historians to shake this view. One of the best quotes that I have seen while discussing this myth, and how it simply is not correct, is from Ian Malcolm Brown, who wrote British Logistics on the Western Front, which is currently a very expensive book that I would love to get a look at. In his book, Brown said, quote, The very idea that Britain, France, and Germany, as well as Austria, Hungary, and Russia, all managed to simultaneously produce a generation of complete incompetence at the highest levels of command is patently ludicrous. End quote. 
If you follow this thinking and you start to reevaluate the competency of the British generals at the front, then it stands to reason that a thorough re-examination of the role of cavalry is also required. If they were competent at their job and they thought the cavalry were useful, maybe there was something to it? The second myth is the fact that machine guns, simply by the fact that they existed and were used, made cavalry completely worthless. As a person who plays many video games, you often hear this relationship referred to as a hard counter. While it is true that machine guns may have made it difficult for cavalry to execute the large and densely packed charges that were present in the Napoleonic Wars, the cavalry did adapt, which is something that we will discuss in detail during the second half of this episode. The cavalry leaders were fully aware of the possible threat that machine guns posed, and so they changed their tactics to minimize the threat. They also saw the machine guns as an advantageous weapon that they could use to make the cavalry more effective, not less. Before the war, the cavalry training manual that the later generals Haig and Sir John French would help create would say that, quote, the characteristics of machine guns are described in the previous section render them valuable for employment with the cavalry, end quote. And this was the view of many before the war. It was believed that machine guns could be moved into position of maximum efficiency quickly by the cavalry, and they could then disrupt the infantry so much that the cavalry would be even more successful. The idea makes some sense, as shown throughout the war. One machine gun placed in the right position was absolutely devastating to any infantry within range. This would mean that if cavalry could follow that up, they would be even more successful. It's also important to look at tests done before the war on just how effective machine guns would be, and the results were disappointing for the machine gunners. Most of the casualties to the machine guns during the war occurred against men greatly slowed by obstacles and exposed to pre-positioned prepared machine guns. A cavalry unit would never be charging an entrenched machine gun across a battlefield covered in barbed wire. That would be stupid. The fact that the war devolved into those fighting conditions was certainly not foreseen by any of the European armies beforehand. In the open field, with the weight and difficulty of setting up the machine gun, the cavalry would have been far more effective because they could get it into place earlier than the infantry could, and some of the early actions of the war would actually show this. The third myth was that the cavalry used an inordinate amount of supplies for their usefulness. The men and horses were not used for large portions of the war, but they still had to be fed, both the riders and the horses, which theoretically robbed some supplies from the infantry and artillery. It is a fact that keeping the cavalry well supplied was a considerable challenge for all of the armies, and not just on the battlefields of the First World War. In the British colonial wars, there were many instances where they could just not supply enough food for the horses, causing them to be completely ineffective, or in severe cases, causing many horse casualties. It is also true that fodder had to be brought to the horses, because during hard travel of training or during wartime, the horses required far more food than just some grass here and there, if they were to keep their strength up. To get enough grass by grazing would have taken a huge amount of time, something that could not be afforded. So bringing the food to the horses was the only option, but it could be problematic, however, it was, but it was not some huge black hole of resources. One of the statistics that is thrown out there is that 5.8 million tons of fodder were shipped to France during the war, and only 5.2 million tons of ammunition were shipped. This can easily be used to show that the cavalry used more supplies than the artillery. However, 
This does not properly convey the situation, and if you dig deeper, there is a different story. At the beginning of the war, the cavalry represented just 34.4% of the horses in France. And by 1918, that number would drop all the way down to just 6%. So a huge amount of that father went to the horses that were not employed by the cavalry. And a big part of those horses were employed by the artillery. So all three of these concepts will be touched upon through all of these episodes. So it's best to file them away for now, as we discuss the British cavalry's evolution of doctrine prior to 1914. The second source used heavily in these episodes is another doctoral dissertation entitled Fire and the Sword, the British Army and the Arme Blanche Controversy, 1871-1921, by Stephen Batsy. For those wondering, like I did, what Arme Blanche means, it translates roughly into cold steel. However, in our context, and in the context of cavalry discussions, it is related to the idea of the cavalry charging and engaging the enemy with a lance or a sword, sort of the classical image of cavalry handed down since ancient times. The main purpose of the dissertation by Badsey is to review the cavalry controversy that was present in the decades leading up to the war, then discuss a bit about what happened during the war before closing out with some post-war controversy. The controversy over the role of cavalry in modern warfare was an old argument that started well before the First World War did, and Badsey traces the evolution of cavalry thought in England from the middle of the 19th century, which is where you really have to start if you want to dig deep into the role of cavalry in 1914. One very important reason why you have to start there is because that is when so many of the generals in 1914 were brought into the cavalry and their thoughts formed. Generals like Sir John French and Douglas Haig will play a part in our story. There were three wars in the 19th century that Badsey examines to discuss their impact on British doctrine. The American Civil War, the Austro-Prussian War of 1866, and the Franco-Prussian War. Each of these displayed different ideas of what cavalry could be in the middle decades of the 19th century. The problem was, they did not really help when the war came around in 1914, since they were so far in the past. During that time, there had been a huge number of advances in technology and military thought, and without a way to test out the theories that were being developed, they remained just theories on paper. The primary point of contention among theorists at the time was whether the cavalry should continue to be used in the classical sense, which involved lances, swords, and a hell of a lot of guys riding horses straight at the enemy. If this was not the case, maybe they would work more like mounted infantry, with rifles and tactics revolving around movement, scouting, and skirmishes on foot. Badsey summarizes, quote, The controversy was over the role of cavalry in future war. The generally held view was that the arme blanche charge was obviously obsolete, and that cavalrymen clung to it for social and sentimental reasons. British military leaders of the First World War are therefore condemned for their belief in cavalry. End quote. The conversation would evolve and sway back and forth over 40 years before 1914, and this becomes something of a forgotten era of discussion. Badsy again, quote, It is therefore remarkable that, virtually without exception, modern historians have found the issue straightforward. They condemn the defenders of the arme blanche as fools and praise the advocates of the firearm as prophets. End quote. 
The problem, as Badsey states it, is that most authors assume that the Arme Blanche controversy was so obviously settled that it does not require much discussion in modern material, which in turn greatly simplifies all of the developments before 1914 that very much pointed to the fact that it was not obviously obsolete. So in the interest of history, we will now dig far deeper into these evolutions, starting with what the British learned from those three wars in the 19th century. The first war on the docket is the American Civil War, fought between 1861 and 1865. As a side note, if you're wanting to know way more about the American Civil War, check out the podcast Civil War, 1861 to 1865, over at civilwarpodcast.org. I've been listening to it for years now, and I think they do a very good job, although be prepared to get really deep into some topics. Anyway, the problem with the American Civil War was that it was fought by Americans in America. That may seem like I'm handing out a bit of a slight, but actually it's just a fact. The American army did not have a long tradition of cavalry like the European armies, and they had a much more recent and powerful guerrilla-style warfare tradition. This often involved more flexible fighting forces, engaging on terrain that many European generals would have tried to avoid. These factors counted even more so for the cavalry, which on both sides rarely charged the enemy lines in the European style, and were often found fighting with rifles, carbines, and revolvers instead of the sword. Because of these facts, it was difficult for European theorists to draw much information out of these engagements, or at least they thought as much. When they did try to draw conclusions, they decided that instead of it being any technological or tactical advancements that changed how the American cavalry fought, it was instead the terrain present. This is somewhat the theorists in Britain seeing what they wanted to see, or in this case, discarding what they did not want to see. They could have seen how effective mobile, rifle-wielding, mounted infantry were in the spacious areas of America, but instead they did not. They did also point out, though, that there were several instances where the defeated armies were defeated partially because they lacked cavalry to scout and support the infantry. The best example of this was probably at Gettysburg. Next up was the Austro-Prussian War of 1866. This war showcased cavalry that the British could really identify with, as they used European-style lances and sabers. Unfortunately, there were not many engagements in which the cavalry were involved. This was balanced out by some interesting developments that came about during the battles that they were involved in during the last few months of the war. The primary development was the abandonment of the infantry tactic of forming squares to receive an attack by cavalry. This tactic had been used for many, many years, and involved the infantry unit forming a square, generally three to four ranks deep, and arranging themselves so that they could fire on all sides, while also being able to protect themselves with the bayonets of their rifles, which they used like pikes. There were many famous examples of squares in the history of warfare, but perhaps one of the most applicable and famous was the British squares on the ridge at Waterloo. But really, that example only comes to mind because I just finished a great book on Waterloo a few weeks ago. The reason that the squares were not formed by the Prussian army near the end of the Austro-Prussian War was because of the introduction of the Dreis rifle, which was a breech-loading rifle. This allowed the Prussians to fire faster, but it also gave them a reputation that was probably bigger than the reality. This reputation caused the Austrian cavalry to withhold the charge, not because of the consequences in front of them, but because of the perceived consequences. 
This was concerning for everyone around Europe, as breech-loading rifles became the standard, because, quote, British commentators concluded that if cavalry were told they could never charge breech-loaders, they would never try, even on occasions when it was possible, end quote. It would only take a few more years for the Prussians to be in another war, the Franco-Prussian War. During the Franco-Prussian War, the French cavalry did not make a good name for themselves. They often neglected their scouting duties, leaving French commanders ill-informed, only to then become obsessed with the charge, thereby executing them over ground that made any positive result impossible. The Prussians, on the other hand, executed several successful charges in the old style, like at Mars la Tour which got the most attention after the war. One of the worrying trends through all of these wars, and that only got worse during the Franco-Prussian War, due to the size of the cavalry units involved, was the wastage of horses that was reaching almost unsustainable levels. Horse injuries and deaths were something that were bound to happen. It was just inevitable. But the state of warfare was bringing those casualties up higher and higher. For example, in just eight months, the Prussian army had to replace a million horses due to injury, exhaustion, or death. A million. In a long war, say like a four-year conflict between like every major power in Europe that might happen in the future, the numbers would grow to be almost catastrophic, mostly due to the pushing of the animals too far while simultaneously not providing them with enough fodder. This was a lesson that Really, the armies wouldn't learn very well. This was not out of pure neglect, but also from some ignorance. As the Industrial Revolution gathered steam, horses had become less and less essential in everyday life. This meant that in large conscript armies, you often had men going into the cavalry with far less equestrian experience. This also meant that there were less horses in society to make good the casualties, something I'm sure that we will discuss later on. With all of these lessons learned from all of these wars, the British now had 40 years after the end of the Franco-Prussian War to ponder on them and try and figure out what they thought should happen with the cavalry in Europe for the next war, which could happen at any time. So let's pick up the story in the early 1870s. After 1870, the conversation did not immediately become a discussion about how the cavalry had no place on the modern battlefield. Instead, the conversation was mostly around what precisely the role of cavalry should be. One of the most popular theories among non-traditionalists, with traditionalists being defined as those people who wanted cavalry's role to remain the same, was to convert all of the British cavalry into light cavalry. Light cavalry were used for scouting for the army and some light skirmishing. One thing they did not do was execute charges on the battlefield against the infantry. This final function was the primary sticking point in pretty much all of these discussions. Even though the viability of the entire concept was under discussion, it still did not stop traditionalists from continuing to develop developing tactics around its use. During this time, they made some important changes to cavalry tactics, specifically around the regulations for the distance at which a charge should be started and how many men should take part. The hope was to get cavalry in close before launching a charge, sort of a similar concept as jumping off trenches for the infantry. The goal was to help prevent this problem described by Badsy. Quote, a cavalry charge could only succeed under certain rare conditions, notoriously difficult to judge. 
but the cavalry must be committed to the charge and to heavy casualties if it fails when its leaders were too far away from the enemy to know absolutely if the conditions prevailed. End quote. One of the reasons that the arguments over cavalry were so intense was because there was a belief that a good, hard-charging group of cavalrymen, if trained to use the gun, like light cavalry and infantry, would no longer be good, hard-charging cavalrymen. I guess it was thought that some part of imparting that cavalry spirit on the men was to give them no other options. As I mentioned earlier, even though there were all these arguments and these tactics changed, there were no ways to test them, no way to prove theories or experience mistakes. And this meant that arguments went cyclical in nature. Each generation of cavalry officers would have the same set of arguments and discussions as the ones before them, pulling from the same sources and drawing the same conclusions. There was also one hope of breaking the stalemate, and that was the British colonial wars and the experiences of the officers participating in them. The experience in these conflicts did little to advance the case of keeping the heavy cavalry around, but proved the great value of light cavalry with their ability to scout around during campaigns, which was seen as priceless. The colonial officers were also known for their tendency to improvise with their troops in the search of getting the greatest value from their cavalry and their infantry. This led to some units of infantry being mounted or trying to combine the heavy and light cavalry into a hybrid type that was good at both roles. In fact, this type of fighting, this hybrid style of having infantry riding horses able to deploy quickly to areas of the battlefield and beyond, developed in several different theaters almost independently. The implementation of either mounted infantry or hybrid-style cavalry was never perfect, though, due mainly to the differing tools that the heavy cavalry, light cavalry, and mounted infantry needed to perform their different jobs optimally. For example, heavy cavalry needed large horses and large men, capable of charging a short distance with a lot of heavy equipment, while light cavalry needed horses with endurance and to carry as little weight as possible. At this time, a fully loaded heavy cavalryman might be putting 300 pounds on the horse, including his person, which was a completely unsustainable weight for long marches, and could destroy a horse in a matter of days. So when it came time to arm these hybrid cavalry units, which might theoretically scout or charge, the answer was different on a unit-to-unit basis. But one thing made remain the same. Weight concerns were so critical that many units only kept items that were used often. And the items that were for the heavy cavalry, the lances, the sabers, were often discarded because they just weren't used enough. When the officers who had pioneered these styles came back to England, they began to discuss their experiences and began to codify some of the techniques. They also became extremely concerned with terminology and the very specific differences between the heavy cavalry, the light cavalry, mounted rifles, mounted infantry, etc., etc. The cavalrymen were concerned that they were heading down the road of being converted into mounted infantry, which would cause them to lose their distinct identity. General Wollesley, commander of the British Army at this point, would say, quote, There is a tendency on the part of cavalry officers to imagine that when men lecture them on the uses of mounted infantry, that it is a sort of personal attack on the cavalry service as a whole. End quote. For our American listeners, I would compare this situation to the reason why the United States Marine Corps insists on maintaining its own air assets, when I'm sure that the Air Force or the Navy would be happy to provide them with some help. 
It was just part of the identity of the service, that distinction and that separation. But part of the reason that mounted infantry would become all the rage in the 1880s was due to the budget cuts experienced by the British Army, and cavalry was expensive. The British kept just a small number of cavalry units on the highest levels of alert, but they still had problems funding them properly. It got so bad that the cavalry that could even be horsed, both active and reserve, if they were all mustered together, would only be able to provide about half the numbers that they were supposed to be called on when a war started. This was a huge concern, obviously, and part of the solution was to create more mounted infantry. This was a great way for men to be horsed and mobile, but at greatly reduced cost. A similar number of mounted infantry were less than half the cost of the number of cavalry to train and maintain. They were also only given a fraction of the amount of training on a horse, generally just a few weeks of year, mostly just so they could ride along without falling off. But it did increase the number of men who could theoretically be put on a horse and would be able to take advantage of things that the horse provided, like the mobility. I will close out this episode by talking about the real cavalry killer, technology. Or at least supposedly. Let's start first with rifles. By 1890s, all of the armies of Europe were equipped with breech-loading rifles, but so were the cavalry. In fact, the British cavalry were just as well-equipped as this, in this regard as the infantry, boasting the latest carbines from Lee Enfield and Lee Metford. As for accuracy, the cavalry were just as good as the infantry, even winning some shooting competitions. This gave both the infantry and the cavalry greater shooting ranges on the shooting range, However, it was often found that the theoretical maximum ranges of these guns were rarely able to be used on the battlefield, because men simply could not see that far. The other supposed cavalry killer, the machine gun, was actually seen as a useful tool instead of a great cavalry killer. It was thought that the machine gun, carried by a horse and positioned before the cavalry attack, would be a very useful weapon against densely packed infantry units. In this role, it would not be used much different than artillery during earlier wars. The idea was to use some combination of artillery and cavalry to put the infantry in an unwinnable situation. The best tactic to deal with artillery was to spread out, but the best way to deal with cavalry was to group up. It was possible that a machine gun would be even better than the artillery for this role, due to its greater accuracy and ability to be brought closer to the action. Because of these technological changes and the tactical changes discussed earlier, the cavalry drill book used to train new cavalry officers in the British Army would be rewritten, and two of the men in charge of that effort were none other than future generals Haig and French. This rewrite contained several important directives, but maybe the most important was that, while the cavalry charge was still a valid action, it should only be done against infantry that was in loose order, from a short distance, originating from behind cover and against a flank. So a pretty complex set of requirements that would honestly be difficult to fully meet. The rewrite of the drill book also put a much greater emphasis on small unit cavalry action, with squadrons being used as the base unit for many maneuvers, instead of larger brigades or battalions. Dismounted action still occupied a relatively small piece of the puzzle, though, with only 11 pages dedicated to it, and only 8 days per year prescribed for dismounted practice. The changes from the colonial wars and the move away from strictly heavy and light cavalry, and instead of move towards a hybrid medium cavalry style, was implemented during the late 1880s. 
All of this meant that the British cavalry that would enter the 20th century were very different than what had been used in the Napoleonic Wars, even though it's sometimes difficult for us in 2016 to separate the two in our mind. So, everything I've talked about in the last paragraph makes it seem like the cavalry charge was very different than what we imagine. And that was true, and the cavalrymen also tried to communicate how drastically everything was changing. They just weren't very effective. According to Badsey, quote, They were not very good at communicating this, though, these changes. They were practicing charges with small numbers of cavalry and cavalrymen in loose formation. But to critics, the very mention of the charge, or the cavalry fight, evoked images of the big knee-to-knee brigade display, end quote. And these critics, for the first time going outside of the intimate circles of army and cavalry officers that had been participating in the debate so far, were about to make the cavalry debate a much larger issue in Britain, as the clock ticked over from the 19th to the 20th century. And that is where we start our narrative next episode. This is Carl on his motorcycle. Let's ride till we run out of gas! And this is Carl off his motorcycle. Balsa wood is very different than teak. People confuse the two. On his motorcycle. Hey! Check out that view! Off his motorcycle. Let's do puzzles in the break room. On. Look at all that open road! Off. Look how long my fingernails are getting. You're better on your bike. Progressive helps keep you on it. Get a quote in as little as three minutes at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.